Well, as we get started this morning, let me first of all welcome Northside West. It's always a joy to be able to open up God's Word to you. I know John does a great job, but, um, but I love being able to share with you. Also, let me say that this morning, because of the amount of material that I have, I'm going to try to stick very close to my notes this morning so that we'll be able to cover all this material. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready? I mean, this is, this is the one we've been waiting on. This is the controversial subject that we've been wanting to hear about. What does the Bible say about alcohol? And let me say, it would be easy not to address this subject because the truth of the matter is most people don't. But Solomon addressed this subject as he was speaking to his son in the book of Proverbs. And if we're going to be true to the Word of God then we have to address this subject. Now, when it comes to social drink and the attitude of many, and and dare I say most is, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. Now, some of you are saying, not me. You don't know what I believe. And I would say to you, yes, I don't know what you believe, but it doesn't matter what you believe. Because most of us on this subject have already made up our minds. And what I want you to do this morning is I want you to unmake your mind so that you can hear me out. Because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look and see what God's Word has to say on this subject. And as we do, I want you to know that we're going to question some of the traditions that some of us may have grown up with. And we're certainly going to question the culture in which we live. Now, before we get started, I want to take a poll. I want to know who I'm speaking to. I want to know where you're at. And what I want to do so that you will be honest in this poll is I want you to close your eyes. I don't want you to look. I don't want you to peek. I don't want you to go, I wonder what my wife is going to say. What my neighbor is going to say, what my life group teacher is going to say, I don't want you to do that. Keep your eyes closed. And we're going to take this poll, and I want you to be honest, be completely honest, and and you can only answer once. You've got one opinion. You don't have three opinions. So close your eyes. Don't look. The first question is this. The, The first thing I want to know is this. This is the question. Is it always wrong to drink. If your answer is it's always wrong to drink, it's a sin, lift your hand. If it's always wrong to drink, lift it high, lift it proud, shout it loud. All righty, put your hands down, not as many as I thought. Okay? Second question Is it sometimes okay to drink? If that's your answer, then lift your hand. Got a lot of Methodists here, a lot of Presbyterians. Just kidding, just kidding. Okay, put your hand down. Uh, The third option is this. I'm not sure. (laughs) If that's where you're at, raise your hand. All righty, put your hands down and look at me. A lot of different opinions here. Uh, A lot of us have different ideas on this. And, And if we have different opinions and different ideas, then how can you and I, as a body of Christ, live in fellowship with one another if we have these different ideas and different opinions. I'm reminded as I think about drinking of the difference between a 
Baptist and a Methodist. You know the difference, don't you? A Methodist will speak to you when they see you in the liquor store. A Baptist won't. They'll try to avoid you. Have you ever heard how many Baptists you take with you when you go fishing? You take two Baptists with you when you go fishing because if you take one, they'll drink all your beer. If you, drink, if you take two, they won't drink any of your beer. So you always take two Baptists with you. Now let me give you some figures if I can. A recent Gallup poll reported that 67% of adult Americans drink. 67%. The average drinker consumes four drinks a week. Let me break that down a little bit further. Protestants, 61% of Protestants drink. 78% of Catholics drink. 80% of all others drink. Most likely, the majority of adults that are here this morning drink. Now, I want to begin by addressing this issue personally. My dad grew up dirt poor. When I mean dirt poor, he was dirt poor. And my grandfather, which I never knew, he died before I got to know him, had a steal in the house to help make extra money so that they could pay bills. And so my dad grew up with that, a steal in the house. And when my father was in grade school, my dad would put him in the car with him and take him on his runs, his deliveries, to sell the alcohol that they had distilled in their homemade Still. And so my, my dad went with my grandfather. Now, I grew up in an entirely different household. When I was born, my dad was in college preparing for the ministry. And I grew up hearing that it was wrong to drink. Now, I want you to hear me. My dad was never legalistic on this. He was never judgmental on this. But this is the way that I grew up. I grew up hearing you shouldn't drink to the point. That when I was in high school, someone was trying to open a liquor store right near our church. And my dad fought it successfully to keep that liquor store from being able to open next to our church. One night we came home from church and someone had sprayed our house with buckshot. Now fortunately no one was home and nobody got injured, but, but that's how I grew up. I accepted Christ at an early age, and, and I began to grow in my relationship with Christ. I desired to live for Him. But when I was 16, something happened. Uh, peer pressure, I can blame it on that. My insecurities, I can blame it on that. But I began to drink. I, I went to the beach with some of my friends who were older than I was, some of my friends who Looked up, I looked up to, and, and I drank for the very first time at 16 years of age. And, and I didn't just drink, I drank. And they gave me some beer, and I got to tell you, that stuff tasted awful. It was flat out nasty. I couldn't drink it. But they got me a fifth of Boone's Farm, and I guzzled it down. That cut the edge off. And then I was able to drink beer after that. Needless to say, I got drunk. Pass out drunk. When I woke up, I was sick as a dog. I was miserable. Sick. And yet I was excited because I was one of the group. 
That began two to three years of my life where I abused underage drinking. And I was absolutely miserable when I was by myself. Because, like I said, I was a believer and I knew what I was doing, abusing alcohol, drinking as a minor, was sin. And I felt like drinking was sin. And I was miserable. But when I was with my friends, everything was okay. Because I was accepted. I was one of the group. I can remember my first year of college. And in that first semester, I didn't have a car on campus, and my dad came to pick me up one Friday to take me home for a weekend. And, and all during this time, my mom and dad had been praying for me. And, and, and that day, when we were going home, we had a conversation, and he told me about something that happened to him when he was in the Marine Corps and he was in Korea. And he said, son, one night we went out drinking, myself and some sergeants and some of the corporals went with us, and, and there was one guy with us that didn't drink. And some of my sergeant buddies thought it would be funny to hold this guy down that didn't drink. And and force alcohol down his throat. And, and that's what they did. He said, I didn't participate, but I watched it, so I participated. And then he said this to me. He said, son, every time you take a drink, that's what you're doing. You're holding Jesus down and forcing him to drink. Because your body is the temple of God, and he lives within you. And whatever you do, you're forcing him to do. And you may say, well, there's nothing wrong with drinking. That really doesn't matter at this point because what he said connected with me. It hit me. It stuck with me. I've never forgotten it to this day. But it didn't change me. <laughs> I continued to drink. And to one night, a couple of months later, six weeks later, I'm not sure. We were out one night and we were partying. That's what we called it. And, and someone got deathly sick. Literally thought they were going to die because of something I was doing, and they did. That got my attention. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I, I literally ran outside after finding out the guy was going to be okay. Ran outside, fell on my face before God, and asked God to forgive me for the way I was living. Because I was living in rebellion against him. And, and I, I said, God, if I'm not saved, save me. I want to be saved. And... And at that point in time, I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I want to do. Wherever you want me to go, I want to do, go. However you want me to live, that's how I want to live. And I, I recommitted my life to Christ. I wish I could say to you that everything changed overnight. It didn't. You see, alcohol kind of had a hold on my life. And it, and it took a while for me to overcome it. But eventually, I did a complete 180. I moved from abusing alcohol to looking down on anyone that used alcohol. That's just who I was. I became very legalistic. I became very judgmental. And to the point that my senior year of college, we, I had the privilege of studying overseas. And, and one of the professors that went with us was also the chaplain at the college, the university that I was at. And, and he went with us. And, and I remember seeing him on multiple occasions drink wine with his meal. And I thought, this guy is such a hypocrite. If he is even a Christian, he's an awful Christian. A terrible Christian. I was very judgmental of him. All the while, I had my own sins to deal with. Now, that was me. That was where I was at when, when God called me to preach. But that's my story. 
what is the Bible's story? Because you see, in the end, it doesn't really matter what my story is and what your story is and what my background is and what your background is. What should matter to us most is what does God's Word say on this issue. And the Bible speaks often about alcohol. As a matter of fact, the word wine occurs 231 times in Scripture. The word strong drink occurs 22 times in Scripture. Sometimes it is used negatively. Sometimes it is used positively. Sometimes it's simply neutral. Now, there are three Hebrew words translated wine. There's one Hebrew word translated strong drink. There's one Greek word translated wine. There's one Greek word translated strong drink. And then there's one word, it's actually a phrase, that is sometimes translated wine in the New Testament. It's not actually wine, oinos. It's the phrase fruit of the vine. And it's talking about simply grape juice. And so wine occurs 231 times. The most often used word is the word yayin. It's used 141 times. It's translated wine. It is seldom meant to speak of the the fruit of the vine, unfermented grape juice. It is most often used to describe fermented wine. Now, some people say, well, it may have been wine, but you couldn't get drunk on it. If you couldn't get drunk on it, then why did people get drunk on it? Because we read in the Bible that they did. I mean, in Genesis 9, after the flood, Noah decided it was time to have a party. He made wine. He got drunk, was prancing around naked, and was shameless. Lot, when he escaped Sodom and Gomorrah, his wife was turned into a pillar of salt. His daughters were the only ones left in the line. Their husbands didn't come with them. The Bible says that that Lot's daughters got him drunk on wine and then they committed incest with him so they could have children. It's, it's this word, yayin. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker. It's the word yayin. And so for those people who say, well, the wine in the Bible couldn't get you drunk, that's simply not true. It can get you drunk. Now, there are other times when that same word is used in a positive light, yayin. And we're not going to look at it right now. We're going to look at it in a few minutes. But Psalms, 101, Psalms 104, Ecclesiastes 9 or 2. Now, most scholars agree that the ancient wine that they drank in biblical times was fermented, but it wasn't as strong as our wine today. And, and the reason is they had not come up with the distillation process yet. That, that only was invented by the Arabs in the Middle Ages. And so they didn't know how to distill the alcohol and make it more potent. But you need to understand it was fermented, uncut. Most scholars tell us that the, the wine, the alcohol of biblical days was 7 to 10% alcohol. And so uncut at 7 to 10% alcohol, that could get you drunk. And so that's yayin. The next word is the word asis in Hebrew. That's used five times, and it's most often used to describe wine that is made from other fruit. Yayin is wine that is made from grapes. Asis is wine that is made from other fruits. And then the third word is tarosh. It's used 38 times. And in your 
Bible, it is oftentimes translated new wine. It refers to the fruit of the vine. You've taken the grapes, you've made grape juice, and you're drinking the welches that we use when we're having communion together. And so that is used 38 times. And then there is the word, and let me give you some places where that's used. Proverbs 3 verse 10 says, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, your vats will brim over with new wine. When God says if you give to him, he's going to bless you. He's not saying that he's going to bless you with something that's going to get you drunk. He's saying, I'm going to bless your fields so that you will have vats filled with grapes. That's what he's saying. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 11, he says, Then I will send rain on your land in the season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain new wine, that's the grapes of the vine, and oil. And then finally, there's the word shikar. That word is translated strong drink. It was the strongest drink of the day. It occurs 23 times. It is very clearly intoxicating. And with very few exceptions, the word shikar is most often seen in a highly unfavorable light, in a negative context. Now, the New Testament word for wine is oinos. And again, it too is used both positively and negatively. In John 2, Jesus turned the water into wine, oinos. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul told us to get not drunk, be not drunk with wine, oinos, but to be filled with the Spirit. Now, let me say before I move on that that these words and, and what they mean and the wine that people used in the Old Testament is debated by people today. And to be honest with you, I'm not smart enough to enter into that debate. I've read a lot on it, and I can tell you what what ancient scholars said. I could tell you what Roman historians and Greek historians wrote back in Jesus' day. I can tell you that. But to be honest with you, I'm just not smart enough to enter into that debate. But what is known and what is agreed to by most people is the wine that was drank every day by people was typically wine that was cut with water. And what they say is it would be one part wine, 7 to 10% alcohol, cut with three parts water. And so you would have the wine that then was cut with three parts water. So you'd have one part, 7 to 10% alcohol wine, and then you'd have three parts water. Now, could you get drunk on that? Absolutely. Could you get as drunk as you could drinking 7 to 10% alcohol? Absolutely not. Now, here's what I know. The people that tell us, well, you couldn't get drunk on the wine in the Bible. The wine in the Bible was unfermented. They're not being true to Scripture. And you need to hear that. I wish you could pick up the Bible and say that. I really do. (laughs) It would make things a whole lot easier. But you can't do that. But the second thing I would say to you is those people who say that there is no difference between the alcohol of our day and the alcohol of biblical days, they're not being true either. Because the distillation process has made alcohol much more potent. And most often, though not all the time, the alcohol was cut down with water. And so you need to understand that. Now with that said, What I want to do this morning is I want to answer three questions about drinking 
And then I want to give you five principles that I believe you need to follow as you determine what is right for you to do. The first question is this. Is drunkenness a sin? And the answer to that question is always, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, 100% of the time, drunkenness is wrong. It's a sin. The Bible makes that crystal clear. Now, we use drunks as comedy today. We laugh at them. But let me tell you, if the drunk is your mom or dad, your husband or your wife, your son or your daughter, it's not a laughing matter. And understand, drunkenness is never a laughing matter to God. Here's what God says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that we are deceived when we think that drunkenness is not a big deal. Drunkenness is a big deal. In Galatians 5, it says this, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that drunkenness is the result of our sinful nature. It is not the result of our new nature. It is up there with witchcraft, with all types of sexual sin, with idolatry. This is serious stuff. That's why Paul warns us in Ephesians chapter 5, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Now Solomon addresses this. In one of the longest single passages in the book of Proverbs. The only subject that Paul addresses in a more complete text is the subject of sexual purity and adultery. He addresses it in in Proverbs chapter 23. Listen to what he says and how he describes someone who is overcome by alcohol. He says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshed eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. That is simply saying it's more fermented. When it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and it poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind will imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can get another drink? That's what Solomon says happens when we abuse alcohol. I've got to be honest with you. I can't think of a single good thing that comes from drunkenness, and I know what it's like to be drunk. But I can think of a lot of bad things. I can think of broken homes, of violence, of accidents, people killed on the road by drunk drivers, addiction, people doing destructive things, people destroying their health. There's all kind of bad things that come from drunkenness. 
I don't know one good thing. But the inevitable question is, what is drunkenness? I mean, if you sit back and say, okay, I, I know the Bible says that I'm not to get drunk, but what, what constitutes being drunk? Is it passing the legal limit? Is it falling down? Is it slurring your speech? Is it passing out? Well, the Bible never clearly defines it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I wish it did. I wish the Bible said, this is drunkenness. But the Bible doesn't clearly define drunkenness. But this is what I would say. Whenever you are affected in any way by the alcohol in your system, you're in a dangerous place. It could be affecting your family. It could be affecting your job. It could be affecting your health. It could be affecting your your reflexes. It could be affecting your your ability to work, it can be affecting a variety of things. But whenever it affects you, you're in a dangerous place. And I would also say that whenever you need to take a drink to get by, or whenever you need a drink to cut the edge off, you are in a dangerous place. You're relying on alcohol rather than the Holy Spirit. And I want you to hear me. When you do that, when you need a drink to take the edge off, when you need a drink to help you calm down, that is borderline idolatry. Because what you're doing is you're trusting alcohol to do what God says I want to do for you. And so the question you've got to answer is, is alcohol a crutch? Do you need it to get through difficult times? Do you find yourself looking forward to the next drink? If so, then you probably have a problem and you need to get some help. You need to stop. But here's the bottom line. There is no thou shalt not drink in Scripture. So, is drinking in moderation a sin? And the answer to that question is, drumroll... Not necessarily. Now, let me give you several passages where fermented drink is spoken of in the positive. Psalms 104, verses 14 and 15. He makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine, yayin, that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains the heart. You know those people that say you shouldn't eat carbs? The Bible says God gives us bread. The Bible says that God is concerned about our complexion. He gives us olive oil for our skin. And the Bible says that God gives us wine. Deuteronomy 14 verse 26 is speaking of going to the place of of sacrifice, to present your sacrifices to God. And the passage is talking about if, you, if you're not able to get there, what are you supposed to do? And this is what it says in Deuteronomy 14. Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, yayin, or other fermented drink, shikar, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord, your God, and rejoice. Now, you know, some of you are like me, and you're going, dang, I wish that verse wasn't in the Bible. (laughs) I mean, I've got to be honest with you. You know, it would be a whole lot easier if verses like that weren't in there. But it is. 
And then Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7. says, go eat your food with gladness, drink your wine, yah yin, with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. And the truth is, Jesus turned the water into wine. And, and Jesus was called a drunk by those who wanted to discredit him. Because he hung out with drunkards and, and gluttons. And now, let me remind you that I said, it's not necessarily a sin to drink in moderation. He said, why did you say not necessarily? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. Well, if you have an addictive personality, addictive tendencies, then you need to stay away from alcohol. I've got an addictive personality. Man, I have a tendency to do everything in excess. Alcohol isn't a good place for me to be. Can I tell you, this is the way you say, how do I know whether I have an addictive personality? If you chew gum and you go to the store and and get a pack of gum and before you get home, you've chewed three pieces of gum, you got an addictive personality. You don't need to drink. You need to stay away from it. Some of you are underage. And underage drinking is always a sin and it's always a crime. And if you are drinking and you are underage, you are stupid. And you need to stop it. Some of you parents, you're saying, well, I'd rather them drink with me than out there somewhere else. Seriously? You know what they call that? Contributing to the delinquency of a minor. You are committing a crime if you give your underage child alcohol. And it's not just a sin, it's a crime. And let me tell you, if I find out you're doing it, I'm probably going to turn you in. Because you're stupid. And you're making a poor choice. Don't do it. You see, when we say drinking in moderation is not necessarily a sin, in some instances it it is always a sin. Now some would compare eating and sex to drinking. And they would say, well, there's no difference between drinking and eating. And there's no difference between drinking and sex. You can abuse all. Even Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, a man can go awry with both wine and women. Should we do away with both? That was Martin Luther who said that. But I would say there is a difference between alcohol and food and between alcohol and sex. You see, we must eat to live. We don't need to drink alcohol to live. We must have sex to procreate and continue the human race. If you have to drink to have sex, you got a big issue. As a matter of fact, it's not going to help you. It's going to hurt you. Take that from the doctor. Okay? And so understand there is a big difference. Some would say, well, there's no difference between overeating and gluttony than there is from getting drunk. And I would say, which would you rather meet on a dark road? Someone who had just been at the buffet and gorged themselves? Or someone who had been at the bar and is drunk? I choose the buffet every time, amen? And so understand, just because something isn't a sin doesn't necessarily mean we need to go out and do it. And and that means that there are some of you that are going, finally, a preacher said that it's not a sin. Praise God. Drinks on me. you got a problem. Seriously. 
if that's your attitude with what I said, you have a problem. And you need to recognize that. So is drunkenness a sin? Always. Is drinking in moderation a sin? Not necessarily. So that leads to the final question, and that is this. What is the wise thing to do? After all, we've discovered in the book of Proverbs that it's not always a question of right and wrong, is it? It's a question of what is the wise thing to do because the book of Proverbs is teaching us how to exercise wisdom. And here's what Solomon said in Proverbs 20. Wine produces mockers. Alcohol, wine is yayin. Alcohol leads to brawls. That's shikar, strong drink, leads to brawls. Those led astray by drink cannot be wise. Now to me, not to you, but to me, that tells me clearly, for me, what is the wise thing to do. I need to stay away from it. Because it will lead to mockery, it will lead to brawls, and, and I'm not going to be wise if I do it. Because it can hold me and grip me, and it can change me. Not for the good. Now let me tell you what some... Some pastors have said, and we're not going to be able to go into detail, but J.D. Greer is pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh and one of our leading young pastors in the SBC. I'm finding out that more and more pastors are young today as I get older. But this is what he said. He said, so yes, a Christian is free in Christ to drink alcohol, but of course they're also free in Christ to disassemble a belt-fed machine gun and eat it piece by piece. That doesn't mean either of those automatically are a good idea. The poppy plant, not inherently evil, but that doesn't mean smoking crack cocaine is a good idea and profitable for a Christian, even if they live in Amsterdam. It is not technically sinful to lead a loaded crossbow sitting on our kitchen table, but that doesn't mean it would be a wise thing to keep one laying around, especially with four curious kids. Freedom to do a thing and the wisdom of doing that thing are not the same. Of course, fermented drinks are not in the same category with loaded crossbows. The biblical passage above indicates some believers have drunk alcohol without sin. But drinking alcohol is also in the same, is not in the same category as caffeine or sugar. It is a potentially mind-altering drug. No one gets loaded up on three lattes and, go home and goes home and beats their children. As such, our use of alcohol requires special consideration. John Piper said, I regard total abstinence generally as a wise and preferable way to live in our land today. Some quote Charles Spurgeon, uh, the, the great preacher, as someone who supported smoking cigars and, and drinking. He, he, drank, he drank liquor for a while. I mean, one of the well-known stories is of Spurgeon inviting Dr. Pentecost to preach in his church. And Dr. Pentecost, who believed that smoking cigars was a sin got up and started talking about smoking cigars, and Charles Spurgeon was sitting there on the platform with him and pulled out a cigar from his pocket and started wrapping it up and lit it up <laughs> right there on the stage. That was Charles Spurgeon. And a lot of people use him to say, well, Charles Spurgeon said it was okay, and if he said it's okay, then we can do it. But they forget to mention the latter part of Charles Spurgeon's life. And I don't have time to read the entire thing, but, but let me just tell you what Charles Spurgeon said later on in life. He quit smoking earlier 
And then he said this before his congregation. I abstain myself from alcoholic drink in every form, and I think others would be wise to do the same. But of this, each one must be a guide unto himself. In other words, what he was saying is, I'm abstaining. I I think it would be wise for you to abstain. But in the end, you have to determine what God is leading you to do. Now, with that said, let me tell you where I am. I abstain from alcohol consumption. I don't drink alcohol. And it's not because I believe it's a sin. I don't believe drinking is a sin, according to God's word. For me, I don't believe that it is a wise thing to do. In Proverbs 31, it says this, It is not good for kings, O Lemuel, not good for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave alcohol, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Give alcohol to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. This is one of the reasons that we tell our pastors at Northside that if you become a pastor here, you can't drink. It's not that we're trying to be legalistic. We believe that as leaders, we're called to make wise decisions. And we believe that the Word of God is very clear here on how we as leaders are to act. So how do we choose the the wise thing? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, test everything, hold to the good. And so let me give you five principles to follow, and we're going to have to hurry here. Listen, and we'll go quickly. The first is don't judge. Romans 14, verses 1 through 4 and 10 say this, Accept other believers who are weak in the faith. Don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believes with a sensitive conscience he should only eat vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? They are responsible to the Lord, so let him judge whether they are right or wrong. And with the Lord's help, they will do what is right and will receive his approval. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Should those who practice abstinence look down on those who don't? Absolutely not. Should those who drink look down on those who practice abstinence? Absolutely not. You may say, well, I believe that abstinence is the only way because alcohol has sent a number of people to hell. It's true that alcohol abuse has sent people to hell, but so is pride. And we need to recognize that. You see, we need to be careful not to impose the standards that we have that the Bible doesn't impose on other people. We need to be careful not to look down with contempt on someone who looks at a view different than us. You see, some of us want to force our restrictions or our freedoms on other people. And that's legalism. Max Licato said, legalism is making my opinion your burden. You see, some things are clear in Scripture. Homosexuality is a sin. Adultery is sin. Drunkenness is sin. Idolatry is sin. Social drinking is not clear in Scripture. And so for you and I to be dogmatic on this issue is being judgmental. The Bible makes it very clear what Jesus thinks about that. So don't judge. The second thing, don't violate your conscience. 
Romans 14, 14 says, I know and I am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. Did you get that? <laughs> Paul said, I, I know that, that meat offered to an idol, there, there's nothing inherently sinful with eating that meat that is offered to an idol. But if someone thinks it's sin and they eat it, guess what? They sin. When we violate our conscience, we're sinning. And so if you go out today and you say, well, the pastor said it's not a sin to drink. I'm going to go drink even though I think it's wrong to drink. You're sinning. Whenever you violate your conscience, it is a sin against God. Third, don't cause other people to stumble. Romans 14, 13, and 15 says this. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. 1 Corinthians 8 says, But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. A stumbling block is something that causes another person to sin. Now, let me throw something at you. Mature believers don't have stumbling blocks. Did you hear me? Mature believers don't have stumbling blocks, only immature believers. And so if you sit back and you claim, well, I'm a mature believer and, and their drinking, social drinking is causing me to stumble, you're not as mature as you think you are. Because the Apostle Paul says mature believers don't look down on another who does something that, that may be questionable. And so don't be a stumbling block. If a Christian is, is drinking, is influences other people to drink, and that person becomes an alcoholic, are we going to be responsible? Romans 14 says we are. And so that's why we've got to be very careful in what we do. You see, our freedom ends when our freedom negatively affects someone else. The fourth thing, don't be enslaved. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, you say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Whenever anything has a grip on your life and you need it, you have become a slave. And the Bible says we are only to be slaves to Christ. And then finally, we must put the gospel above our personal freedoms. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says, Even though I am a free man with no master, I become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I am not subject to that law. I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish laws, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ when I am with those who are weak. I share their weaknesses for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Christians should never make our decisions simply based on the freedom we have. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more important than our personal preferences and our freedoms that we have. And so where do I stand? Well, I believe in the cultural context in which we live, abstinence is the wisest way to live. I don't condemn my brothers and sisters who disagree with me on that. And, and I ask the same of you. 
If you sit back and say, well, I believe it is a sin, then I would ask you not to condemn me. For you who think that drinking is okay and you're upset that I don't drink, I would ask you not to condemn me. My conviction isn't born out of, out of legalism. My conviction is not born out of mindless acceptance of tradition because I don't do that. My conviction is born out of a pastor's heart with a desire to not cause anyone to stumble and, and to put the gospel of Christ before everything else. And here's what I've come to understand. Unless I become self-righteous and judgmental, my not drinking is never going to cause anyone to stumble. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us right where the Bible does. If you don't drink, if you do drink, one day you're going to stand before God and give an account of your life to Him. And, and your drinking is, is not going to send you to hell. It could, along with a lot of other sins. But your drinking in and of itself isn't going to send you to hell. It's going to accept send you to hell is your refusal to submit your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender everything to Him. Trust Him as your Savior and make Him your Lord. Because until you do that, you're living your way and not God's way. And so I want you to bow your head right now. And we're going to have two prayers this morning, but, but the first prayer is most important because, because listen... If you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, it doesn't matter whether you drink or don't drink, you're a teetotaler or a guzzler. It doesn't matter. You need Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you were lost. And you need to be found. You need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. So if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and today you're saying, I want to do that. I want to take that first step to trust Jesus to forgive me and save me, and I want to give my life to Him. Then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I come to you this morning acknowledging my sin. Forgive me for living my way rather than your way. I don't want to live that way anymore. I know that sin leads to death. I know that sin separates me from you. I don't want to live that way. So right now, I'm trusting you to save me. I know you died to take my sins away. I'm trusting you. I'm giving my life to you. I want to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen. And with your head still bowed, your eyes still closed. There's some of you here this morning who are caught in bondage. You're, you're addicted. For some of you, it's to alcohol. To others of you, it's pornography. To others of you, it's a host of other things. And those things have become a crutch in your life that, that you're holding on to and Jesus wants you to turn loose of all of those things and just trust Him to meet your every need. And so if you're here and you're struggling with an addiction, you've got a problem with an area of your life and, and you're willing to acknowledge it today, then I want you to pray this prayer to Him right now. Dear God, 
forgive me. I want you to list your sin and then say, my sin has a hold on me. It's destroying my life. I don't want to be in its bondage anymore. I don't want to be enslaved anymore. Set me free. Give me the courage to be accountable. Give me the willingness to ask for help, I pray. Amen.